Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the latest Time in the Market podcast as we host one of Invesco's brightest and most pleasant stars, Joe Dowling, a fund manager on the Invesco Global Equity Income Fund and the Founders and Owners Fund, uh, and also, I'm reliably informed, proud owner of several Patagonia Gilets. <laughs> Joe, a thrill to get some time with you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm really well, thank you, Ben. Thank you for such a lovely introduction. Yeah, I appreciate but That's it. where the... Not- that's where the niceness uh, ends, I'm afraid, Joe. It's an interrogation from here on in. But look, I am really excited about this interview. I mean, not only are we going to hear some of your you know, treasured insights, but we will be covering the hottest of hot topics, uh, namely investments in and around uh, the AI theme. So no surprises that, yes, we will be talking a bit about NVIDIA and the mag- some of the Magnificent Seven will come up. But we will look a little beyond those names as well. But before that, help sort of set us up for the interview. As usual, we'll kick off with prefer or defer. It's just 10 closed questions to learn a bit more about Joe's investment preferences, but also uh, a little bit about him as a person. So uh, are you game for this, Joe? I'm ready to go when you are, Ben. Okay, right. Well, we'll see by the end. (laughs) Okay, right. Let's begin. (laughs) Equities or bonds? Equities. Large cap or small cap? Mm, Small cap. US or rest of the world? US. Technology or financials? Technology. Dividends or earnings growth? Defer. Defer. Yes, you can. You can. Yeah, you can. The library or the gym? Gym. Warren Buffett or Stephen Annis? Oh, Stephen Annis. No contest. <laughs> Twickenham <laughs> or Wembley? Twickenham. Algorithms or Ibiza? Algorithms. Sons or daughters? Oh, <laughs> well, you got some. That, some that's some great intel there. Um, well, given that last week uh, I found out we are having a boy, I'm gonna have to say sons. Okay, well, well done, Joe. Superbly navigated. Uh, only deferring on one, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, because you wanted both. And uh, yeah, fair enough on that answer for sons or daughters. But actually, having had both, I can tell you that daughters are miles better than boys. But uh, congrats. <laughs> don't let me take any of the shine Hopefully off. Uh, in the time, then. <laughs> yeah, yes. okay. okay, well, look, sorry, Joe. Look, loads to draw upon there and uh, leads us ever so smoothly into our main conversation. Somehow, if we can pivot to back to being professional. We want to look at these stocks in and around the AI theme and uh, the Magnificent Seven and uh, a little bit beyond. But we are going to begin with Microsoft, you know, a stock that we all sort of you know, assume is so well understood, but its share price moves around, you know, at size. Uh, but look, what is the AI angle here in its sort of simplest form and how dependent are the fortunes of the company upon it? Yeah, so I, I think this is really interesting in that we all, you know, we all know Microsoft uh, Windows and Word and Excel and Teams and, and all of those good things. But AI is is really, really important for Microsoft, particularly in kind of providing the next leg of growth 
And Microsoft's pretty unusual in that they're both the picks and shovels in the kind of AI gold rush, as it were, but they also own a few gold mines themselves. So I'd kind of break it down in a couple of different ways if I could. So the really big picks and shovels angle is Microsoft Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud offering. So whenever we're doing more stuff with AI, whether you're building a chatbot or you're recommending new products or movies to your customers or just using ChatGPT or whatever it is, there's a pretty good chance that you're running that on Microsoft Azure, which ultimately drives Microsoft's revenues. AI workloads require just huge amounts of computational resources, which feed into NVIDIA's chips, AMD, Intel's chips, and, and all the rest of it, to train foundational models in AI, which are then used to infer all sorts of data and eventually drive things like chat GPT or recommendation engines or whatever it might be. And the key point here is that Azure gets paid whenever a company uses this compute layer. Kind of straddling the gold mine slash picks and shovels bucket is Azure AI. So Microsoft recently changed their disclosure, which is really interesting. I think it's two quarters ago now, and they're calling out a specific AI business within Azure itself. We think that's around $3 billion revenue annualized business, growing 150% quarter on quarter, which is just insane. And Microsoft haven't been completely clear about what's in this business line, but we think it's more using Microsoft's foundational models and AI software as a service. And again, you know, anytime any company is doing something with AI, there's a pretty good chance that they're using these products and paying Microsoft. Finally, and this is more the gold mine angle, is that Microsoft are releasing co-pilots. So these are AI assistants that we think could really change how we all work. So there are some really good memes and jokes going around about, uh, I don't know if everyone on uh, everyone listening will remember Clippy, the kind of useless yes. help, <laughs> uh, helping uh, paperclip in Microsoft Word and Excel. And, you know, this is everything that Clippy dreamed they could be in, you know, 20, 30 years time when it was first around. And so this is an assistant that could help you do everything from really basic stuff, taking and summarizing meeting notes and sending them to all your colleagues to coding cybersecurity applications or helping you use AI to uh, make a movie that inspires people to come and work for your company with the Wild West and cats or whatever it might be. These are things that could make a really profound change to how we work, to how we innovate, to the things we create. And we haven't really seen the potential of these yet, but Microsoft appear to have a pretty good head start in helping people use these AI assistants. So yeah, Microsoft straddles a lot of different things and it, it, it's fair to say it's, it's looking pretty bright for Microsoft. Yeah, well, I mean, um... Not that it qualifies sort of Microsoft business prospects, but uh, certainly anecdotally, I'm well aware of those who are uh, utilizing their sort of co-pilot uh, mm. sort of license and, and service. But look, in danger of asking you the same question here, but I guess maybe it's helpful for clarification. Obviously, we sort of know it's so embedded and I sort of laugh at that because it, it's so obvious to all how embedded mm. it is. But what are the key elements then of the growth strategy? As I said, mm. apologies if you're sort of repeating yourself a little. No, not at all. I, I guess there's two big drivers there. You've got Azure, which is, again, anytime, you know, a Netflix is is recommending you a movie or, you know, you're being recommended a new item on the menu at a restaurant, these are going to pull through revenues for Microsoft Azure and Microsoft Azure AI. We've got Copilot, which we've talked about, but I think one of the things that people forget is that 
anytime you're doing an AI workload, it's also pulling in a lot of other Microsoft products that aren't necessarily related to AI. So let's imagine, Ben, that you and I were going to program a chatbot to help us out here on the podcast. And that is going to require us to pull together a huge amount of data, put it securely in a database, protect any customer data that might be there. So that's using Microsoft's data storage products. That's using cybersecurity to protect that customer data. And then we're going to have to crunch an awful lot of numbers, program the AI to help us communicate with it as kind of humans in our own language. And all of that is dragging along revenues in lots of different business lines for Microsoft. There are some other kind of more out there uh, angles as well. I mean, you know, let's not forget Microsoft owns Xbox and you can't help but think you know, could AI, could cloud gaming open up another growth leg to the stool for Microsoft? They bought Activision Blizzard last year, extending their kind of IP there. So I think wherever you look, AI is not just driving Microsoft at that very specific AI product, AI service level. It's dragging the whole business with it and re-accelerating the whole business. So we think that's something not a lot of people have kind of talked about, but it's something we are really excited about. Okay, great. Well, I mean, we could talk lots more on Microsoft, but I want to spend a little bit of time on Broadcom. Uh, I know because it's um, mm. it's a stock your team have owned for a long time, mm. and it's not, it's not in the Magnificent Seven. I, I guess maybe something to do with its uh, size, but uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be talked about as much by the fund management industry. And yet, it's you know it is embedded in the semiconductor industry, and uh, it looks to have achieved a great deal in its sphere. But because it's not talked about as much, can you sort of just kick off by reminding us what it, what its core business is? Absolutely. So. Broadcom is is a really diverse business. So at the very highest level, 60% of Broadcom is semiconductors and 40% is software. But if you kind of drill down deeper in those divisions, there's all sorts of smaller business lines. It's pretty diverse. But what they've all got in common is that they are the backbone of the industries they serve. So what the the, the kind of genius of the CEO, Hock Tan, has been is to collect all these little niche businesses that are in monopolies, duopolies, or oligopolies. The products are very much the backbone of the industries they serve. They don't have many competitors, so they don't really compete that much on price, and they're very, very sticky. So this really gives them pricing power and provides stable, predictable, growing revenues. And I think, you know, it's, as you say, it's not in the Magnificent Seven, it's not a company many people talk about, but the CEO, Hock Tan, has compounded free cash flow per share at 35% per annum since IPO, and the stock's followed. And that that's kind of proper hall of fame levels of compounding, and yet it still remains reasonably unknown. So we can dig into some of the product lines in AI, if that's helpful, or, or take this wherever you want. Okay, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it flagged that there's a sort of a management team or a CEO here that mm-hmm. uh, needs needs to be closely watched wh- wherever he m- mm-hmm. may go. But uh, what is it sort of from an operational perspective you think the market's sort of getting most excited about? And, and, and yeah, what, what perhaps lean into any AI play that, that yeah. there is uh, there is here? So Broadcom's an interesting one in that it's traded around 13, 15, maybe a little bit higher PE for most of its life. And now the market suddenly cottoned on to the fact that they've got about 25% of revenue this year and growing. 
coming from AI, which makes them the company with the second largest percent of their revenues exposed to AI after NVIDIA. So you can see why the market's suddenly like, oh, this is really exciting. Broadcom's AI exposure comes in in two flavors, the first of which is custom silicon chips. So these are chips that perform AI workloads, which are super tailored for customers. So for example, uh, let's take Google. To analogize maybe, this, the easiest way to do it is Broadcom designed the chassis for a race car in this example. And it is a it is a race car, it's a Porsche or a Ferrari or something like that. These are super, super high-end chips. Broadcom do the brakes, the seats, the safety features, the electronics, the racing wheels, everything. And then Google puts their engine in at the end and kind of hit the gas. So Broadcom do a huge amount of the heavy lifting for customers like Google, which is super, super valuable. The second flavor is more networking chips. And to simplify what these do is increase the amount of data a system can crunch, the speed at which it can crunch it, and reduces the power required to do that. So if you're trying to get lots of chips to work together to do lots and lots of exciting AI things, these networking type of chips are super valuable because they just make everything a little bit easier, and a little bit more efficient. Okay, well, great analogy there. So that's something that uh, I can uh, probably just to get uh, my, my head around. It does seem that cars are the default uh, <laughs> reference for analogy, but, but it was still works uh, work very well for, for for explanation purposes. But look, we are going to talk about Nvidia in a moment. But when people sort of talk about Nvidia and, and I guess sort of TSMC as well, and, and mm-hmm. lots of others, but certainly those businesses, it's like the barriers to entry are profound. I mean, it's just not, not getting close to these companies. Is there something similar there with Broadcom, or or is is life a bit more competitive? competitive for them and also can give us an idea of like who their largest clients are of course of course that's a really good question because they kind of intermingle in that Broadcom does have a bit of a who's who of clients they service everyone from Apple to Google Meta their core focus is they really want to deal with the largest companies who have super sophisticated needs very deep pockets require consistent execution and are generally pretty risk averse because again this ties them really closely to the customer and gives them some bargaining power but ironically what's kind of happening is Broadcom does have traditional competitors in the form of people like Marvell Technologies but they're also competing with Google and Meta's internal semiconductor design efforts so you've got this kind of customer slash competitor relationship, which is kind of interesting. You know, it's NVIDIA very much has this with Microsoft and Google and Amazon as well. For the first time, the giant companies in the market are all going up against each other, but also to some extent cooperating in these issues. So it's a really interesting one. Um, right. OK, we will come back to, uh, I guess, sort of at the hotter areas in a moment, but just want to sort of pivot to maybe stocks that maybe have forgotten or, or maybe they've been dismissed by the market for good reason. You know, I think about a company like Intel now, mm. as the audience may be aware by my line of questioning, I'm not on t- across the AI sector or semiconductors as much as, as you are. But as far as I'm aware, having skim red sort of chip war and, and you know, having yeah. used, a, used a computer before, I thought Intel might have enjoyed some of the market enthusiasm for this sector, but it does seem to have been, the uh, market doesn't seem so interested. You know, what, what's it not doing? Yeah, Chip War is a great book. And I, I, re- I think one of the things that that book did so well was spell out how dominant Intel was through the 90s and in the run up to the dot com crisis. And I think what we're kind of seeing is 
that reversion of fortune almost because Intel was so successful that actually they ended up sitting on their laurels a little bit and they're suffering from some of those sins made in the past. So, you know, as Chip Wars says, they really made the best chips right up until kind of the early 2010s. And then TSMC, just by putting one foot in front of the other, just slowly overtook them and now are just completely dominant. And it really looks very difficult for Intel to try and catch them. And it actually, Intel are now using TSMC for some of their products, which is which is kind of ironic and comes back to what we were talking about with this kind of customer slash competitor dynamic. But TSMC, by acting as everyone's foundry and enabling companies like NVIDIA and AMD to just focus on design and outsource to them, has enabled all sorts of competitors to Intel as well, which is really making it doubly difficult for them to keep up. So I think Intel's a really, really good example of how vigilant we all need to be about moat erosion and how quickly some of these, what appeared to be really wide moats in technology can unravel. And it's a good example again of how staying on top of where IT budgets are going, whether they're shifting away from Intel to TSMC or from CPU to GPU is really, really important. Okay, great. Well, we'll get back to stocks that um, you're sort of supporting then at the moment. And I see sort of on your list across your mandates, a company called Bezi, B-E-S-I. Mm. Uh, I see it's a European listed tech stock. Apologies again. I'm not really not that familiar with it. I mean, I thought ASML was really the only European sort of <laughs> semiconductor play in town. I mean, what is this company? What, what, is it, uh, what does it do? Yeah, so, well, it's a really good point because until quite recently, Bezzy was was a bit of a hidden gem in Europe. I must confess, I think it was yesterday or the day before, but we started receiving emails that suggested BESI stands for buy every share imaginable. And, and I know that, <laughs> I know that's, you know, it, it's funny, it's tongue in cheek, but there's also some truth to it, right? And that's kind of indicative of some of the froth and excitement out there. So, you know, it, it's safe to say it's less of a hidden gem today, but when we first came across Bezzy, you know, this was a low mid single digit billion dollar market cap with a 7% dividend yield, would you believe? And, you know, now today it's well over $10 billion. But what they do to try and simplify is they do what's called advanced packaging machines. So when, when you manufacture a chip, you do the chip design, you manufacture the chip, but what you can also do at the end is stack them together with other chips to improve performance and energy efficiency. And this is really, really valuable because it gets more and more expensive and difficult to enhance the speed and power of semiconductors in foundry and things like the ending or slowing of Moore's law or kind of the, the thematic behind this. So finding workarounds like advanced packaging is really, really powerful. And what Bezzy does really well and some of their new products that are coming out, particularly in hybrid bonding, are really, really useful and shine when it comes to AI. So that, I think, is what's behind such strong performance for Bezzy. Okay. Well, again, we'd love to talk more about these stocks, but uh, we want to pivot to another uh, lesser-known company called uh, NVIDIA. That hidden gem, yeah. Look, I mean, it's going to be hard to, I, I don't know, sort of tell the audience things that, that maybe they don't know. I mean, it's just the most talked-about thing at, at, uh, at the moment. But what an astounding set of results, you know. Well done to them and well done to those who own it. But, like, I mean, what, what do you want to say on it, uh, Joe? I mean, what high-level things might you say about this tremendous sort of business that uh, the, the audience might take some uh, some insight from. 
Yeah, it's hard to say anything particularly unique about NVIDIA, but I guess one of the things I would say is don't underestimate the people involved and don't underestimate Jensen Huang. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget that you know, if you haven't followed it for that long, in 2019, NVIDIA had, I think, 55% of revenues or something like that from gaming. This was a gaming business, and it was Jensen Huang's vision and execution and, frankly, uh, courage to bet the company on AI and data centers that has driven such incredible performance. So, you know, I, th I think one of the things I would say is we often forget that a company's fortunes are ultimately in the very longest term driven by the people. And there are some exceptional ones here. I think the second thing I'd say is I certainly am. We certainly are. The market definitely is very excited about what NVIDIA is doing. But you do have to be aware of these moat narrowings that we talked about with Intel. And I think one of the things we've been really impressed about with NVIDIA is they are widening the moat even faster than people are trying to fill it in, it would appear for now. And how are they doing that? Well, one of the things they're doing is really uh, lacing in software into their hardware packages. And they actually have more software engineers than hardware engineers now. So what that software does is, you know, if you're an AI whiz at university, you're training on NVIDIA's software. So that is going to be your kind of go-to program that you're going to use for however many years, because you really, really don't want to train and learn new languages and whatnot. But that's a really important tie-in that might protect the fortune of NVIDIA going forward. So that's a kind of interesting thing to think about, that the company appears to be very alert to the lessons of the past with these moat narrowing effects and trying to build AI into more of an ecosystem and go beyond just hardware. So I think that's maybe something some people aren't thinking about quite as much with, with NVIDIA, but I'm sure they're going to talk a lot more about software going forward. Just sort of on the people thing, because I know you've sort of mentioned people a couple of times, and of course you own like a, or you you also manage a founders and, and owners fund. Mm. I mean, I'm just sort of interested about how much, you know, Jensen Huang sort of talked up the prospects for the business yesterday. I mean, yeah. I, is that is that like a usual thing? And and do you take confidence from from something like that? I mean, uh, I presume you do, do you? That's. I mean, it's a really, really, really tough question in that, you know, of course, you take some confidence from what they're saying. And he could absolutely be perfectly right on a 10 year view. But his visibility into how we get there, the kind of the peaks and the valleys of that journey, he has as good an idea as anyone i.e. we have seen this movie a little bit before and I think I'm right in saying that you know they they were very very excited back in late 2021 and the shares got to something like $330 and then a year later they were back at 100 I think they bottomed below $140 because everyone kind of forgot this is a cyclical business you know this I just talked about software but this is today very much a hardware business that moves in cycles and the trend beneath those cycles is it would seem and um, we would guess very much bottom left to top right but those cycles can be absolutely killer on the way there so we have to stay vigilant to that so you know I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is 
being open-minded to all of the things he he's saying and alert to the vision he's painting is absolutely crucial but so is having one eye on the cycle and where are we in both the business cycle and the stock price kind of sentiment cycle for that so balancing those two is key okay that's great stuff joe i I just want to sort of finish on a couple of questions one sort of ai related and and one not so much i mean i think you've done a great job of giving sort of real life and examples about uh, ai in the business sector but are there a couple of other examples it does seem a bit abstract to us sometimes until people like you bring some color to it now what are the operational sort of successes how how is ai improving lots of businesses so to give us some sense that this is real yeah yeah so this is I mean, we've hopefully everyone's kind of seen some of the amazing things consumers can do with AI, whether that's chat GPT, whether that is making movies, Wild West and Cats, as I said earlier, whatever it might be, you know, blending those things together. But I think what I'm really excited about looking forward is you talk to some of the some of the most forward looking companies with the best data sets. So let's take United Healthcare, for example, that in the US is one of the biggest health insurers, but they also own lots of doctor surgeries and dentists and outpatient facilities. So they've got a real kind of end-to-end value chain, their pharmacies and whatnot. They've got some of the best healthcare data in the world, if not probably the most complete data set. They're very forward-looking, incredibly smart people, and they're using AI today. When you ask them, how are you using AI? They say, well, the best thing we've found to do with it is 40% of our call volumes is people like me who've forgotten their login details and getting an AI to give them the login details. So that's actually saving them a lot of money. But I, what I'm trying to say here is we haven't really seen those kind of killer apps, those game-changing products and uses that really drive AI to the next level. So I think what I'm trying to say here is we are probably at the more beginning phases of what can be done with AI, which I think is the reason to kind of try and remain open-minded of, of how big these companies could be. So that that's quite a nice example. And, and that is one of the things that we are thinking about a lot on the team is who has these amazing data sets that are unique, where AI can provide them with a really big competitive advantage, whether that's legal case law in the case of someone like Relex, whether that's financial data with someone like LSE Group, whether that's uh, car insurance data with someone like Progressive. You know, those are some of the things that I think people should be be really hunting for. Who's going to win in AI using those products? Right. Thanks, Joe. Uh, an incredibly insightful uh, set of responses and uh, really appreciate uh, all, all of your insights. And uh, I'm sure our audience will have enjoyed it as, uh, as, as much as I have. But, I'll, you know, I'll let you get back now to your algorithms and, uh, and your, your research. <laughs> and, in the gym. And of course, generally uh, wishing you all the best for the uh, for the imminent arrival. Oh, uh, but uh, uh, final thanks to our audience. Please get in touch with your relationship manager or myself on LinkedIn or Joe on uh, LinkedIn if you'd like to discuss any of these topics uh, a little more. But other than that, uh, I hope you can join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. Goodbye. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice.
It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class, security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, RG91HH, UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.